So we are going to jump, jump right into our teaching today. So if you guys want, you can open up in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to pray before I jump in. I'll let you know a little bit about what we're going to be doing. And if you guys are new here, uh, you want to pay attention. If you've been here with us for you know, past eight weeks, at least six weeks, three weeks, you kind of have a little bit of an idea. So I'm going to pray as soon as I'm done praying. If you guys need a Bible, uh, we have ushers that would love to get you a Bible. So as soon as I'm done praying, raise your hand. They'll get you a Bible and then we'll get to work. So let me pray. Let's jump in. God, thank you for, uh, for bringing us here. And God, we, we know that it's possible for us to actually be here, but not fully be here. So we, we pray that you'd help our hearts and our minds to be uh, present and aware of what you're wanting to do within our hearts, within our, our minds, our thoughts, within this time, within this space. So God, we just welcome you to do whatever it is that you choose to do. Um, God, as we read your word, we pray that it would just come to life for us, that we would uh, learn maybe new things about who you are, as well as learning things about, God, who we are that, that need to be brought into alignment with who you are. So we, we invite you to do what you desire to do in us, which is to transform us, make us new, change us, change our desires. So God, uh, do that here this morning, we pray. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. You will uh, need one this morning. Um, and if you don't have one, if you don't get one, then uh, maybe you'll need to share with a next-door neighbor. So um, we've been in a series that is connected to what we're calling Your Biblical Literacy. Quick recap um, is that is a through-the-year reading of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, if you've been following along with us as a church doing that. There's a lot of people in our church that are committed to reading the scripture from January to December. And uh, we should be right around the middle of uh, Deuteronomy, the beginning of Deuteronomy, somewhere thereabouts. Um, fifth book of the Bible. Um, but the year biblical literacy is also not just a through the year Bible reading plan. It's also something that we do together in community. So we have small groups um, that meet all around the county that are gathering together at some point throughout the week, some are even in the morning, some kind of throughout lunchtime and whatnot, they're, they're all over the place. And uh, they meet, they gather, they study scripture together, they use the curriculum that goes along with your biblical literacy, and the, the big aim is not just to simply learn about the Bible, the aim is to really be transformed by God's word and changing us and transforming us. So uh, if you would like to get involved in a small group, our encouragement always is the same. Check out our website, calvaryslow.com forward slash community, I think it is. And uh, there's all sorts of information right there available for you to check out. Small group probably maybe meets somewhere near you where you live. Um, so the teaching series that we're involved in right now is sort of a two-part teaching series. The first of which, which was kind of like the first four weeks of the year, we were really kind of studying and asking bigger questions. It was more of a teaching about the Bible as opposed to teaching of the Bible. And what we were attempting to do is try to give you guys tools to help you read, read the Bible. Um, you know, if you've ever attempted to read the Bible, if you've ever tried it, you know it's not always that easy. Um, that's partly due to the fact that it is a between a 20, you know, 2,000 to 3,500-year-old book, and we live in 21st century. And so to make sense of things like that sometimes requires a little bit of a background, research and study and asking questions of the text and trying to understand how the first readers of this text would have understood it. Those are all helpful tools. Otherwise, what we end up doing is we just kind of project our understanding upon this ancient document, which sometimes leads to weird, strange uh, you know, interpretations of the Bible. So if you ever met people that are kind of espousing really weird, strange stuff, that's, that's, that's pretty common. And 
it's in part due to the fact that we are trying to impose modern day ideas upon the text. So the first four weeks is trying to help you just give, give you tools so you can read the Bible. Uh, we, what we've been in for the past three weeks now is basically another series that is more so, uh, it's actually called The Story of God. And this is an attempt to kind of fly 30,000 feet above the entire Bible and try to understand what we're calling the, the big meta-narrative or the big overarching storyline. And this is based upon a presumption. And the presumption is that this Bible that we have in our laps or on an app is a library of 66 books that were composed by many different authors over many hundreds of years on several different continents. But in spite of that, uh, there is one main storyline interwoven throughout the entire Bible. And the question that we've been trying to encourage you to wrestle with is, do you know what that storyline is? If someone were to ask you, how, how, how does the Bible cohesively explain or communicate this message? Would you know how to, to give that message or that answer? Um, we, we should, because the Bible does talk about, you know, be ready to give an answer for the hope that lay within you um, to understand, like, what was God up to throughout this storyline, the way in which we understand who God is. And that's been our attempt, is to fly high above, not to get bogged down in all sorts of details and understanding who the Nephilim are and all these other ideas that oftentimes people spend a lot of excess time focusing on, but the big picture is what, what's happening in this big, major storyline of this really incredible book we call the Bible. So first week we looked at, just kind of quick recap, we saw creation, that God begins this whole story by an act, what we would call a divine creation. God speaks all things into being, and God creates all things, like a cosmic temple, like planet Earth with the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was like this temple God creates. It's beautiful. In fact, we even know later on when children of Israel create and build this actual brick-and-mortar temple, temple or even a tent that's called the tabernacle, in both of those uh, prototypes or pictures or images are all sorts of pictures of like uh, palm trees and pomegranates and fruit. And the question is, why is all this imagery, imagery of fruit and palm trees and lush foliage in the midst of these temples and tabernacles? The answer is, it, it, was, a, it was a copy. It was meant to be a copy of the Garden of Eden, which is God's cosmic temple. But in every ancient temple, there was always at some point going to be an image that was going to be erected. So for example, the Greeks had these temples to Zeus, and in the temple to Zeus, you'd also have an image of Zeus. So you'd have a statue carved out of you know, marble, whatever, of Zeus. Well, God's temple also had an image, or images, put within this temple. And shockingly, the images that God put in this temple are not uh, made out of any type of brick or anything else like that. They're actually flesh and blood, and they're animated. They're living. Humanity, human beings, we are the image of God. And God intended for this project that he called creation and human beings that he put his image upon this planet. His intention was that humanity would partner with God and bring creation forward, bring it someplace to multiply, to fill the earth, to fill earth with the glory of God by creative acts of reproduction, you know, making babies, obviously, and creating things out of the dirt and the dry land and farming and animals and all this other type of stuff. But what we know, based upon the second message that we looked at, was that mankind uh, refused partnership with God by way of saying no to God. And it was through deception, subtle trick, trickery, by what we know as the serpent. The serpent lies and deceives Adam and Eve. And so rather than saying yes to God and partnering with God, 
uh, Adam and Eve chose to deny God or to walk away from God, to, in some ways, we would even describe it as emancipate themselves from God. So the fact of the matter is the Bible storyline is that all humanity, even though originally it was good, it's also been vandalized. So if you've ever, you know, been on a news app and you're like, what the heck is wrong with this planet? I mean, there's amazing things about planet Earth, like mountains to go climb, and it's beautiful at this particular time of year. It's going to start getting green real fast, and we live kind of in our own sort of quasi-paradise. And yet, at the same time, there's people that we know that are struggling with cancer and getting a divorce, and someone dies in a car wreck, and we have all sorts of woes and evil, and bombs are being dropped upon cities, and children are dying, and what's wrong with this planet? And the answer is, Genesis chapter 3, is that humanity, rather than choosing partnership and covenant and relationship with God, has chosen to try to define good and evil themselves, and as a result, have, have brought destruction. So we live in a planet that kind of the best way to think about it is, is it's, a, it's like a ruin. It's a city of ruins. Well, you know, there's a scene in uh, Chronicles of Narnia where the kids come back into the area of Narnia where they're recognizing that there's the city of ruins. At one point, you can see these structures that are massively beautiful, but at the same time, there's all sorts of foliage overgrowing it, and it's, it's in ruins. That's planet Earth. In other words, what we see in terms of elements of beauty is not all that the beauty will one day be when God fully restores it. So that leads us into the third one. The third message was that God did not, God could have completely abandoned this entire project we call creation and earth and humanity because of the rebellion. But instead of rejecting and turning away and abandoning the whole thing, God actually creates covenant with humanity. So in Genesis chapter 12, we see God comes and he involves himself with the God of Abraham or Abram. And God invites him into covenant. That's what we saw last week. Is that God invites Abram to follow him, to say yes to God. And Abraham shockingly does. And God basically says to Abraham, he says, listen, I will bring blessing to you and upon all your descendants. Um, and then he does this covenant. That's the big C word that we looked at last week, is that covenant was a really important word in the entire Bible. And so going forward, the big question is, did Adam, or I'm sorry, did, did Abraham and all of his descendants faithfully abide by the covenant that God established with them? And the answer, obviously, is No. And God says, look, if you follow me, if you walk with me, if you obey me, you will have blessing. Blessing will come upon your life, will take care of you. If you don't, then what will end up happening is you'll go your own path, and your own path will actually bring a, be its own worse uh, penalty. You will find destruction and ruin. And again, this shouldn't come as a shock or surprise, because we kind of made a parallel even last week. If you're in a marriage and you say yes to each other and they're on the altar, which is kind of funny, we actually call it an altar. The altar is a place where sacrifices happen. So here on the altar, husband, you know, to be, says to the wife to be, I, I will take you as my spouse and I will love you and I'll be faithful to you to the very end. And they exchange rings and exchange, you know, happy glances and kisses and the thing's done. The covenant is done. And fast forward five years, ten years, if there is covenantal infidelity, meaning, you know, the husband or wife are unfaithful to each other and they pursue another partner, what will happen is a deep wound of pain and hurt and destruction will enter now into that relationship. There's deep brokenness. And those wounds don't just simply miraculously go away. Um, when, when, when partners are unfaithful to each other, there is a possibility of healing, but it's not easy. And it doesn't come cheap. 
and it's excruciatingly painful. It can happen. I've seen it happen a few times, but for the most part, it, it doesn't happen. There's deep pain. And this is what God's saying, is that, look, if you choose to say yes to me, walk in covenantal faithfulness with me, then blessing will happen. But if you choose to go out after other partners, then deep pain and anguish will come into this relationship that will have to be dealt with, and it'll bring pain. It'll cause great uh, sacrifice to end up happening as a result of this. And that leads us to what I want to look at this morning, which is actually a big theme that's throughout the Bible. And for most of you, you woke up this morning, you're like, I just hope that I hear a sermon on this. And uh, it's the theme of exile. You're welcome. Like most of you woke up this morning, I want to hear a sermon on exile. So I'm giving you exactly what you want. So today we're actually going to be talking about a theme that's really important in the Bible. That many of us, we don't really think about it because it's not one of those phrases that we typically think about ever. It's one that's not poignant to us in terms of culture and society because we are, for the most part, a, a free country and we live in a free market, free world. So the idea of being in exile is not something that we typically think about. But it is, however, a very key central theme throughout the Bible. So I think, again, for us to understand the story of the Bible, we have to understand a little bit about this theme of uh, exile and what does it mean. So this morning what we'll do is I'll explain what exile is in just a second. I really want to look at three things. The main framework of what I want to try to work with this morning are three things. Number one, I'm going to look at the idea of exile as a theme. Secondly, we'll take a look at the concept of prophetic confrontation. In other words, God sets in place people that will confront not just exile, but confront the reasons for exile, like why exile happens in the first place. So there are voices throughout the Old Testament Bible storyline that actually speak to the problems that led to exile in the first place. And then finally, we'll take a look at and kind of wrap up, summarize with God's solution, that God actually has a solution to all of this. So let's jump in and begin to look at the subject of exile as a theme. Let me start with a definition, just kind of a typical Webster's definition. It says this, it's a state of being barred from one's native country, typical, typically for political or punitive reasons. Another one is a person who lives away from their native country, either by choice or compulsion. So obviously, according to this particular definition, it has more so to do with land or territory or property. So if you live in a particular country and you're not part of that country anymore, you are you know, a refugee or an exile from that particular area. In the Bible, it does involve the idea of being an exile from a particular uh, area of land, but it's more than that as well. It's not just simply being in exile from a particular property or a state or an area, but it can also refer to like a state, being in exile from something. Now, what I want to try to argue for this morning is try to at least present some ideas for is that I think the way the Bible paints the picture is that not just Israel is in exile, but actually all of humanity is in exile, and all human beings need to be set free from this exile. And in order for them to be set free from this exile, the very forces and powers that are causing the exilic state have to be addressed. It has to be dealt with and worked through uh, in order for there to be some level of freedom that comes as a result of that. A great definition I like to think about with regard to the word sin is from a guy by the name of Martin Luther. I'm sure you're familiar with him. He describes it this way in the Latin. I like the way the Latin sounds. It's kind of cool. Homo. Uh, Incurvitus in se, which basically simply means this. Humans turned inward on themselves. That's Luther's, Martin Luther's definition of sin. Human beings curved inward on themselves. So think of it that way. In other words, take that idea and then turn it inside out. What would happen if humans were actually curved outward upon God? What you would have, I mean the best way answer I would just give that is you have Jesus 
What, what does it look like to be a human being that's curved outward to God and to other people? It, it, what you would have is somebody that is always making choices in their life to love God and to love other people. Human beings curved inward on themselves are always making choices and decisions and actions to love themselves at other people's expense. That's, that's how we advance. And the fact of the matter is, we as a church community, um, whether or not you follow Jesus or not, uh, we are all by default, uh, this, we have this issue. We are curved in on ourselves. And if you're not aware of that, the moment you get married, uh, you will immediately be blindsided by the fact that this is, this is who you are by definition. You may not be aware of that, but, or you get roommates, and if you have roommates, this, this, it, this whole uh, process uh, is exploited in there as well. So if you have roommates, you begin to discover, like, oh, that's right, I'm very focused upon myself. And the fact of the matter is, is this is the problem that we have, not only as human beings, uh, in this church, in this community, the state has this problem, the world has this problem. So we have our seven billion people on this planet that have this curvature inward upon themselves. We all are focusing upon ourselves. And this is the idea of what sin is. And so sin has this consequence. So in other words, if you have seven billion people on this planet all curved in on themselves, in other words, rather than turning outward to God and trust and love and affection and turning to others by showing dignity and value and kindness and care, compassion, uh, what you have is a world that is now headed towards a variety of consequences. Those consequences the Bible would describe as this state where you may be home on this planet, but it doesn't really feel like home. This may be the place that we find moments of like, this is awesome, I love being alive because you are breathing in the you know, outside air or you're enjoying the fresh hot rays of a sunset or whatever. And, but the fact of the matter is, is that there are also moments in our lives where we're like, I, I don't like this place. I don't, I don't, I'm not happy with this planet. I'm not happy with my community. I'm not happy with my job. I'm not happy with my marriage. I'm not happy with my friends. I'm not even happy with my own body. I'm at home, but I'm not at home. That, by definition, is describing a state of exile. So let me give you a couple examples of this. Um, beginning with Adam and Eve, we see, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 to 24, we see that God calls Adam and Eve to follow him. And what ends up happening is that Adam and Eve, rather than partnering with God and saying yes to God, they turn away from God, they turn in on themselves, and as a result, they are basically banished from the garden. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, says this, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil, now lest he reach out and Take a hold of the tree of life and eat, and then he will live forever. Therefore, verse 23, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which it was taken. Then it says, and then he drove the man out east of the garden. So what we see are two phrases, that God sends him out, and then he's driven out. Those are, those are uh, exile words. What God is basically saying here, what a lot of scholars and theologians have identified, is that what's actually happening here is God is exiling Adam and Eve from this garden that was originally something that they would have access to to bring life. But as a result of what God says right here, they need to be driven out because they can't live in this state forever because they have access to the tree of life. So they are moved out. Later on in Genesis chapter 4, so the very next chapter, we're introduced. Adam and Eve have kids. One of the two of the very first kids that they have are named Cain and Abel. Maybe you're familiar with the story. Uh, Cain ends up killing his brother Abel 
from a circumstance that ends up happening. God comes to Cain somewhere around chapter 4, verse 14, and he basically says, hey, where's, where's your brother? And Cain's like, I have, I have no clue. My, my, you know, it's famous words. Am I my brother's keeper? And God's like, well, uh, he's, he's dead. And he's like, oh, I have no idea he's dead. And God's like, well, yeah, his blood's crying from the ground. Like, what did you do to him? He's like, All right, that's right, I killed him. And then God goes on to say to Cain, you will forever be a wanderer. And here's what Cain's response to God is. He says, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. So this is, again, this is exile language. This is Cain basically saying, I am literally going into a state of exile. Not just that he's being driven from a land, but forever he will feel the sense of being in exile. Later on in Genesis chapter 11, we see kind of this whole story of humanity kind of progress, if you want to think of it that way, progress into what we recognize or call the Tower of Babel. So if you're familiar with that story, humanity, rather than going out to all the earth and being full of multiplication and having lots of kids and taking the human project, if you want to think of it that way, forth, uh, human beings basically say, let's not do that. Let's kind of curve in on ourselves and focus upon what we want to do instead of what the creator God wants us to do. And what God does is he comes down and confounds their language. If you're familiar with that, Tower of Babel, this is sort of the precursor to what we would know as Babylon. So what happens in Babylon, which kind of becomes the archetype of every other major city. It's also the city that kind of plays all the way into the book of Revelation, which one day God says, I will completely turn over, turn upside down, and completely remove the very influence of Babylon in the world. So this Babel becomes sort of the archetype of rebellion throughout the entire Bible. But the point that I want to make is this, is that before all this happens, God drives humanity from what their state or lot was. Again, this is a picture of exile, the driven into exile. Now, future, God, again, like I said, are going in Genesis chapter 12, this is what we looked at last week, God calls Abraham, Abraham has this covenant with God to partner with God, to say yes to God, it's kind of like what we would describe as a fresh start, so our message today is basically a part two of what we began last week, because what we recognize is that the Bible is a really big book, especially the Old Testament, it's a very, very thick book, it begins from Genesis, goes all the way to this prophet guy by the name of Malachi, and and I, I didn't want to go over too much. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to focus on the fact that from the story of Abraham, he's called now to be in partnership with God. And Abraham's descendants are called to be in partnership with God. And God makes these promises to them that if you obey me, I will bless you. You will multiply. You'll be a great nation upon this planet. But what ends up happening is this big question. Does Israel faithfully walk in covenantal obedience and relationship with God. In other words, are they a faithful bride? The answer is not at all. They are constantly disobedient to God. And as a result, what we see from the very first group of people, because fast forward from Abraham, he ends up having a son by the name of Isaac. Isaac has a son by the name of Jacob. Jacob has a whole bunch of kids, and his kids end up going down to uh, Egypt, they end up becoming enslaved by the Egyptians. If you're familiar with the story, they get set free. It's a whole book of Exodus. They get out of the land of Pharaoh, and they're, they're basically liberated from Egypt. And now here they are um, on the outskirts of the land of Canaan. They're about ready to be given this land of promise. So long story short, um, uh, Moses sends a handful of spies to kind of go into the land to check it out. A handful of the spies come back. Some of them are like, this is amazing. We can do this. God's given us an incredible land. And then the overwhelming majority come back, and they're like, we're dead. 
There's no way that we can go into that land. There's way too many giants and difficulties and hardships. And these are like, you know, warrior people that live out there and we will be crushed. God hates us. That's the narrative they bring back. God has only brought us out here to crush us. God doesn't love us. God needs to be thought upon with a level of suspicion and not trust. And this brings you back to Genesis chapter 3, which is the voice of the accuser raising question about God's trustworthiness. So anytime, anytime that narrative comes into our thinking of can God be trusted, it's just this recycling of a narrative that gets us, it's trying to tempt us to say, maybe he can't be trusted. Well, who can be trusted then? How about that inner voice? How well will that inner voice lead me and guide me? And that ends up becoming its own worst end. And let me just say this. As Americans, I think one of the narratives that we live by is that freedom, true freedom, is found by self-expression. The greatest form of being free, the kind of American or Western mindset says, for you to live according to the fullness of whatever it is that you desire. So whatever it is that you desire, you should be able to do that with all of your heart. And nothing should ever stop you. The problem is, is the Bible would basically challenge that assumption and say, actually, living according to all of your desires is actually enslavement and not freedom. Because let me give you an example. Our desires, how trustworthy are they? Let me ask you this. What types of desires did you have five years ago? What types of emotions or thoughts or ideas or infatuations or dreams did you have five years ago that you, were, that you thought were so solid, so tangible, now fast forward to present, that you look back at those desires back then, you're like, oh, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, just look at your hairdo from five years ago. What were you thinking? Look at the clothes you wore 10 years ago. What were you thinking, right? That's what happens when we look at old pictures. We're like, what in the world was I thinking? Because back then, you wouldn't have worn it unless you thought it was kind of cool. But 10 years in the advance, in the future, you look at it, you're like, I don't know what I was thinking. That's, that's the point, is that not only do fashions change, but our thinking changes. Our desires change. And not only that, our desires are contradictory. It's kind of funny because on the one hand, my wife and I, our family, we try to, you know, eat healthy, and um, there was a season of time where we were just like, Let's, maybe we could do like a vegan, like, diet and like eat vegan. But the problem is, is that on the one hand, I have a desire. I want to eat healthy and even maybe even have a vegan diet. But on the other hand, I really want a big, red, juicy steak. Like, th those are totally incompatible, and yet they're deep desires that I might have. I might have a desire to want to be very healthy and eat well and eat clean and eat organic, but at the same time... I want to eat like cheesecake and things that are not good for me and I don't really care about it. But the point of the matter is, is that we have contradictory desires. So what desires do you choose? Which ones do you follow after? How do you know those desires that you have will actually genuinely lead to life? So to say, to live according to your desires, that's not freedom, according to the Bible. According to the Bible, that's actually enslavement. Now what, what we really need are new desires. Remade into the likeness and the image of God that match and parallel the heart of God. That's what needs to happen. So in other words, something radical needs to take place that completely challenges what we feel, what we think, how we think, and transforms us. It's what the Bible would basically describe. We actually need a new heart, which we'll come to that in just a moment. 
So what we see, for example, with the people of Israel is that they are these fugitives. They're in exile from the promised land for how long? 40 years. So for 40 years, they wander in the wilderness, and they never actually are allowed to go into the land of promise. But while they're in the wilderness for 40 years, a lot can happen in 40 years, and apparently a lot did happen in 40 years, they had children, as you would imagine, and their children had children. So there were second and third generations from these people that did not doubt God the way that they had doubted God. So that brings us to really the story there somewhere on the book of Deuteronomy, which we'll come to in just a second here. But what we end up seeing, first and foremost, is that I just want you to think about it this way, or to frame your understanding of the Bible, that this idea of exile is consistent throughout the Bible. And this is where I would say that for the most part, that all humanity is in some form of exile. Exile from God, exile from even what relationships should truly be like, exiles from even this planet, where there's certain elements where we feel at home here on this planet, but then there's other things that happen on this planet that we're like, this world is not my home. This is so foreign, so messed up. I would liken it to this way. Let's say, for example, if a mafia boss comes and works his way and makes an offer with you that you cannot refuse and ends up becoming, becoming your roommate, right? He's murdering people, doing bad stuff on the side, making bill, you know, bargains and stuff like that. And yet, this is all happening within the context of your home. And you're like, well, someone might say, why don't you just get rid of Mafia Boss as your roommate? And you're, you're like, I, I tried that, and they threatened to kill me. And you're like, I'm kind of stuck. So I'm at home in my house, but it doesn't feel like home because Mafia Boss has overrun everything, controls everything, manipulates everything. That's planet Earth. We're home, but we're not at home because there's a power, there's a force that's unleashed upon this planet that has exercised its authority and its destruction, its brokenness upon this planet. It's described in some cases as Satan or as the serpent or as the evil one or even in some cases as desires that are gone wayward, away from God. That's what's happened upon this planet. So the question is, how do we come home from exile? And that's where we move on to the very next thing, is that in order for this to basically become undone, the forces that are causing the exile in the first place need to be confronted. And this is where you kind of move into a section of the Bible, which is what's called the prophetic literature, prophetic writing. So this is like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Daniel. This is called the major prophets. There's also what's called the minor prophets, which would be like Joel and a handful of these other. But that composes a pretty large majority of the Bible, or at least the Old Testament. The prophets. And again, I'm kind of moving our way through the Old Testament. Now we're kind of moving into the section of the prophets. So what we see are these, the, the prophets, they confront. So who are the prophets? So the prophets were basically people that were not necessarily part of the religious system. Some were. Some of them were just farmers. Some of them were just normal standard people whom God calls. God invites to become someone that speaks to the people. Now a lot of times, depending upon your tradition, we tend to think of the prophets as being exclusively those that tell the future. That's a fortune teller, by the way. The, the prophets are not exclusively, they're not fortune tellers. They don't necessarily just tell the future, though they do tell the future. A lot of the prophecies are about the future, but it's more in-depth, more nuanced than that. It's not just them telling the future. It's actually confronting the forces and the power that be. And this is what makes the prophets, the prophetic literature, so interesting, is that the prophetic literature, is in some, in some cases, you'll see them actually write 
um, dissertations or write words. I like to think of the prophets as like poets. Um, maybe even kind of the, the lineage of, say, something like, um, I don't know, um, why am I thinking of blanking on his name right now? Anyways, it'll come to me. But uh, poets or songwriters, Bob Dylan, that's what I'm thinking about. There we go. So someone who's able to write incredible poetry and put it to music, and his songs are not just like songs. They're able to actually simultaneously confront forces and powers uh, in very nuanced ways, but at the same, also at the same time offer an alternative way of thinking and living and considering life as, and how it could be. I think of the prophets being like that. They are masters at words, so they're able to kind of bring together by way of the Holy Spirit speaking through them um, what God wants them to say. So there's occasions where they will actually confront the forces and the powers that be. And those forces and powers that be sometimes might take the form of Nebuchadnezzar. These are, mass, you know, these are uh, uh, empire heads or even guys like Pharaoh, like when Moses confronts Pharaoh. But also, it's not just simply attacking the most obvious um, tyrants of the age, but it's also addressing the very reasons that oftentimes the tyrants uh, are, are able to exist and other types of circumstances that are happening in people's life, meaning their heart. That there are occasions where the prophets also address the waywardness, the disobedience of God's people. So they'll say something like, why are you disobeying God? Why are you turning away from God? You're not disobeying God because you have someone's boot on your neck. You're disobeying God because you've fallen in love with other things that Yahweh says don't love. So the prophets are a really important part of the Old Testament literature. But again, their big aim is to address people that were within covenant relationship with God, have turned away from God, have gone into exile, and their aim is to hope, hopefully bring about a message that confronts not only the tyrants, but also the reasons why which they're in exile as well, in order to bring them a word of hope that God can deliver them. So I had written up here that the prophets, they repeatedly brought both a challenge and a call for Israel to confront their distrust and rebellion toward God and to turn toward him in repentance and love. And then I wrote this, that the heart of the problem actually is a problem of the heart. And repeatedly, the prophets always keep coming back to this. They're like, the big issue here is not just some sort of big bad guy called Pharaoh or some big bad guy called Nebuchadnezzar or some big bad guy called Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. The real big bad guy is the tyrant that lives right here and everyone's heart that's bent inward on itself that says, I want my will to be the will of the neighborhood or of the kingdom or of the world. And anybody that challenges or confronts my will or stands in my way will be put down. Or whether or not, if you don't have the power to put someone down, you put them down by your words. You say nasty things about them. You create a Twitter campaign against them. You get in a battle on social media against them. And it's another simple way of just simply putting people in their place because your sovereignty has been confronted. So what the prophets are doing, they're saying, look, the real heart of the problem is that we have a problem with our heart. It needs to be changed. It needs transformation. It needs healing. So we see, for example, some of the ways in which the prophets address this. So it says this, uh, for the exile to end, these forces, realities, conditions, which caused in the first place, uh, the, needs to be dealt with. So this is what the prophets do. They don't just simply give nice, uplifting words. They also address the very problems that created the conditions in the first place. So, for example, the book of Deuteronomy. Again, this is Moses writing to a group of kids and grandkids of those that have wandered for 40 years. 
And so they're about to go into the land of Israel. If you're familiar with the story, you know that Moses is not going to go into the land of Israel. And again, that's a whole other backstory to that. But what Moses is doing is he's prepping them. He's like, look, you guys are the kids and the grandkids of the generation that came out from Egypt but never made it in the promised land. They've been in exile for 40 years in the wilderness. So Moses is like, I want to talk to you guys about what life could look like, what life will look like in the future for you. Then he goes on. He, he, he describes to them the law. And he basically repeats to them what the law was from the book of Exodus and Leviticus and whatnot. And then he adds a handful of other ones. But at the very end of the book of Deuteronomy, he basically says this. Look, when you guys go into land and you rebel against God. So it's almost like he's like realizing you guys are going to go to land. But at the same time, everything I'm telling you not to do, you're going to end up doing anyhow. And bad's going to come upon you. Because you will rebel against Yahweh. And you will bring great consequences into that relationship and exile will end up happening to you nonetheless. But even in the midst of exile, God will still use those circumstances for good. In the end, though it will be painful ultimately through it all. So in Deuteronomy chapter 10, it's kind of the center part of this book. Uh, Moses says this, that the Lord has set his love on you and your fathers and chose their offspring for them. Then God goes on to say, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart that you may no longer be stubborn. So immediately what Moses recognizes is that one of the issues here that may be contingent to these people veering from God or drifting from God is their heart. Again, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Their heart's have grown stubborn or hard towards God. I have two daughters, and one of the things I've constantly repeated to them over and over again since they were really young is that the most important thing that you have as a human being is your heart. you got to guard it well. you got to make sure. You gotta, you gotta, it's, it's not just about you making sure that your external actions are good. See, a lot of times parents, they just want their kids to do good things. And sometimes it has to do with the fact that it's more about the parents because they want to be recognized as these parents that have kids that do good stuff. But really the main thing is that parents need to recognize that the heart is the most important thing. What a child loves, how a child respects, what a child focuses upon is what ultimately will, what guide, will be what guides them. And so again, to simply try to stop doing certain habits that may be bad for you, may be noble, may be good, but at some point it will fail you. To simply stop downloading porn is not going to get rid of the fact that your heart still has a lust issue. Does that make sense? You have to deal with the actual issues of the heart. The reason why you go to porn in the first time is you have a love issue. You have a, you have, there's there's a, a, a disconnect between what's tangible, what really love is all about, and something that you assume or you uh, think that will actually give you a sense of focus and whatnot. So the, the heart needs to be radically reoriented, or the way that Moses describes it, it's got to be circumcised. That those things that are part of the heart that are actually keeping it unfruitful and broken and ruined and prone to decay and infection need to be dealt with. So it's an issue of the heart. And later on in the book of Jeremiah, these other prophets, this would have been several hundred years later, it's about 500 or so years prior to uh, Jesus coming on the scene, prophets like Jeremiah would say something like this. They envision, probably based upon these uh, promises of uh, Moses says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel uh, after those days, declares the Lord, that I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. So Jeremiah, he envisions, envisions a day where God will actually create a brand new group of people 
that rather than just simply being people doing external outward activities that look quote-unquote religious, these will actually be people that based upon the very fundamental engine that drives the very actions that they do will be radically reformed. They will have new hearts. Do you realize that's the most important thing for all of us? What drives us into exile? What drives humanity into exile? Oftentimes it's what we love. Now there are occasions where our exile, our states of not being at home, can be imposed upon us by tyrants. But by definition, that is what sexual and physical abuse and emotional abuse creates. It's a tyrant coming in, imposing their will upon another person and causing that person to not feel at home in their own body, feel at home in their own house, not feel at home in their own neighborhood. And that, by definition, is a tyrant causing them to go into status of exile. But a lot of times, exile comes as a result of us being in collusion or connection with our desires and allowing our desires to run rampant. What we need more than anything is a brand new heart that reforms and changes how we think and what we love and what we desire. And this is exactly what the prophet said. One day, God will give people a brand new heart, a new desire engine, if you want to think of it that way, that runs you, guides you, empowers you, motivates you, causes you to do the things that you do. Jeremiah 32, verse 39 and 40 says this, I will give them one heart. He goes on and says, this will be an everlasting covenant. Ezekiel 11, verse 19, he says, I will give them one heart, another prophet, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone. I will give them a heart of flesh. These are images that these Old Testament prophets, while they're confronting the very forces and the powers that are at work, enslaving and causing people to go into exile, are also at the same time saying, look, there's hope though. Because one of these days, God will give people a brand new heart. And he'll address, as a result, the very forces that caused them to go into exile in the first place. Which leads me to the final thing, which is God's solution. I like to think, think of it this way. That God's solution is, another way I put it, is it's the word become flesh. Jesus, the word. God's word, God's ideas, actually, literally, take upon flesh and bone. That God, be, God enters into this world in the most profound way. And it's not until we come to Jesus that we see how realistic and how committed God is to ending your exile and my exile and humanity's exile. And not only just in a superficial way of saying, let's just give them religion. That's not God's interest, by the way. God's interest is not just superficiality. It's actually going to the very core, the very root issues that cause our exile in the first place that are oftentimes linked to not only desires that go wayward, but also desires of other people that have gone wayward and imposed themselves upon us by way of abuse. Which, by the way, that's what Pharaoh was. That's what Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was, and what Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, was. These, these were abusive people who imposed their will upon the other people and brought Exile upon entire nation. So the question is, what did God do and what was God up to creating a new sense of order? And it's not until we come to the story of Jesus in the Gospels that we begin to see how serious God is about actually not just addressing the issue of exile, but actually addressing the very forces and the power and the principalities that are at work bringing about the exile. The sense of lostness, the issues that are at play, the darkness, if you would, that are happening all around us. 
So I'm going to finish by reading just this story in the book of Luke. If you want, you can turn there real quick. Uh, there are a couple passages I highly recommend. I'm not going to read them just because of time. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, is it's totally connected to the book of Mark, chapter 114. It's in this amazing uh, depiction. Again, I, I think what the writer Mark is doing is he's saying that, look, Jesus is not just some random Jewish guy from Galilee entering into the scene, that this Jesus is actually the very one that has come to bring light into the darkness and liberation to the exiles. And then we see in the book of Luke, chapter 24, I want to finish just by reading this story. If you want, you can just follow along and listen. Um, I'll make some comments as I go and we'll wrap it up. Luke chapter 24, we see that uh, what's happening here is Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem, as you're familiar with his life, as we'll be looking at actually in the next week, is that he comes uh, after doing miracles and helping people and healing people and bringing dignity back to people and teaching God's word, being faithful in the garden. He's praying to God. He says, I'm totally committed to your will, God. Whatever your will is, I will do, even in spite of the fact that it may cost him his own life. Why? Because Jesus, shockingly, he's not turning on himself. He's not affected by the disease of sin. He's focused on God, and he's focused on you. And in the garden, he's able to say, God, your will be done, not mine. And ultimately, he goes to the cross, and on the cross, he suffers, he dies. What's happening on the cross? I would suggest, and some other scholars would suggest as well, that this is the ultimate consequence of exile, death. It's Jesus on the cross, ultimate status of exile. We see Jesus uh, in the beginning of Mark, again, that little passage right there, verses uh, 12 through 13. We see that Jesus goes in the wilderness. Again, Mark starts his little gospel story telling us that Jesus goes in the wilderness. Why? Why? A, why tell us this story? B, why? Why would Jesus go in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to, to fast and to pray and to do whatever it is he's about to do? Uh, a lot of scholars would see this as Jesus basically saying, I will go to the very extent of what Israel experienced. I will experience too. How long was Israel in exile in the wilderness for? 40 years. She's like, so will I. 40 days, suffer, fast, be tempted. But as a result of that, in the midst of the temptation, he will end up being obedient to God. Rather than giving into the temptation, he will ultimately come out the other end saying yes to God rather than no to God, like Israel did repeatedly over and over and over again. Jesus dies. He's risen again, and now in Luke chapter 24, I'll wrap it up with this. He's walking on the road to Emmaus. It tells us in verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. It was about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking to each other about the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near, and he went with them. So imagine these two guys walking. Jesus comes walking up at this particular point, verse 16. says, and their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So they had no idea who this was, which is kind of a shocking nuance and, uh, into the story. In verse 17, it says, and as he said to them, uh, what is the conversation that you guys are having with each other as you walk? And they stood still. So imagine they stop. Imagine they're just walking. All of a sudden, they stop. And they look at each other, I would imagine. And they look back at Jesus. And they're like, what are you, what are you talking about? Are you a visitor? To Jerusalem, do you not know what's happened in these past few days? And then Jesus says, what things? And so at that point, you're just supposed to laugh. Like, wait, what? 
Jesus, they, Jesus is having this dialogue with them. They don't even know it's Jesus, and he's just kind of playing along with this whole story. And then they go on to say, uh, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, we thought that he was a man that was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. Again, what's a prophet do? A prophet comes to challenge and to confront wickedness and then recast a vision for hope and life in the future in a different way. We thought, we hoped that Jesus was this one, but ends up, as they go on to describe and disclose, uh, he was delivered up unto death, condemned to death and crucified, verse 21. But he had hoped that he was the one that would redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, now it's the third day and these things have happened. Verse 22 goes into this little story. It says that you know, a bunch of these ladies, they claim to have gone to the tomb early in the morning. They came to come back and they claim to have seen this vision that Jesus is alive. We haven't seen Jesus. We think these ladies are crazy. They're nuts. We don't, we don't believe them. In verse 25, and it goes on to say, and then he said to them, you foolish ones, you're slow of heart. To believe. Another way of thinking about this, maybe there's, there's a sense of sleepiness on your heart. You're not, you're not seeing these things. All that the prophets have spoken. Wait, what did the prophets speak? The prophets spoke of one that would be like another David or another prophet, a greater prophet, a greater king that would come and confront the darkness that imposed exile. And again, for them, they realized this is not just about confronting Caesar or even this wayward high priest named Caiaphas, it's far deeper. The evil, the wickedness is far deeper than just simply Caesar and Caiaphas. That the darkness is a darkness that no one would have ever even imagined. It's a darkness that has infected every one of us, that has caused all humanity to go into the status of exile. And he goes on to say, and he said, of foolish ones, you've slow of heart to believe. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Verse 27, in the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, all the scriptures, the things that were concerning himself. So this would be like one of those Bible studies I really wish was recorded and uploaded on someone's podcast. But unfortunately, it's not. This is Jesus talking from Moses. And it's first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, all of these books in the first five books, all of the writings, which would be like all of the prophetic writings, all of the prophets. This is Jesus literally doing an entire sweep of the whole Old Testament era, saying all of this was about me and what I was come to do to set free those who are captive, to bring home those who've been in exile by dealing with the forces and the powers and the wickedness and the darkness and the oppressors and the tyrants that have caused the exile to begin with and ultimately to give them brand new hearts. This is what Jesus is up to. And in verse 28, so they drew near to the village. At this point, they still had no idea who this was. Uh, to which he was going. He acted like he was gonna be going a little bit further, but then they urged Jesus strongly saying, stay with us. For toward the evening, and the day was now far spent, so they went to stay with them, and he was there at the table with them. And then he took bread, he blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened. Then they recognized him, and then ultimately he vanished from their sight, disappearing out. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? What happened? So here they are with Jesus. I had no idea it was Jesus. And the way they recognized Jesus was through the breaking of the bread and the cup. Begin to realize he was the king. 
the son of David, the one that would come, that would confront. He was the great prophet that would actually challenge the great wickedness that's alive in this world. And it wasn't just Caesar and Caiaphas, as I mentioned. It went far deeper. And on the cross, Jesus went into his own exile, banished, took upon himself the consequences of what happens to a soul that is homeless for eternity, what it feels like to be completely alienated, left alone to rot, to die, to be abandoned. Here's Jesus on the cross experiencing his own exile and ultimately conquering that by coming up from the grave and then announcing to his disciples, you can be free. And this is the good news that Jesus comes announcing all of us and inviting us into that the very forces, the powers that are at work, whether it be outside forces at work imposing their will upon us or inside forces that come from a heart that has false desires, misplaced desires, conflicting desires, wayward desires, all of it, Jesus says, I can make all things new and I will set you free. This is the good news. We don't have to live as exiles. We can be set free. We can be brought to a place called home. And this is the great hope for us as followers of Jesus. That even though this world has suffered under the consequences of sinful rebels, seven billion of them all turned inward upon themselves, his promise is that one day heaven and earth will intersect. And surely as The waters cover the sea, so will this earth be filled with the glory of the Lord. That's the great hope that you and I all have, that the way the book of Revelation describes it, Babylon will be confronted, this great power of force will be undone, Jesus will come and bring healing to all things, there will be no more tear the way Jesus describes it, no more pain, no more things that caused the suffering in the first place, all of the curse will be reversed, and what we see in the very last book of the Bible is a tree. Brings us back to Genesis chapter 1, that Jesus is the one that brings healing. So, in response now, as we go to the table, as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, this is a time for us to respond and consider, to think about the level, the depth of God's love for us that's been put on display. And to even at the same time reflect upon and ask the questions to our own, our own hearts. What are the desires that you have right now that may be wayward? They may be the very things that are getting you in trouble. It's not just actions. It's the desires that drive those actions that need to be reformatted. And this is what the gospel offers, is a new heart. Jesus would put it this way. It's having an encounter with God is like being born again, being made new. Do you understand how hopeful this is? How much good news this truly is, especially for someone that has lived a life in exile, slaves to their own desires, and or external tyrants that have caused deep pain. This is the hope that's offered to you and to myself right now. Now's the time to respond. So why don't we all stand? I don't know where you're at, what types of circumstances you're dealing with, but this is an opportunity to come to the table, to eat the bread, to drink the cup, to do business with God. So I'm going to pray. We'll sing. This might be an opportunity for you to come forward. If you have anything that's in need of prayer for right now this morning. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're wrestling with the idea of who Jesus is and trying to make sense of this. Um, it's all that needs to happen for you to be made right with God is really nothing more than you speaking with
your own heart, God, forgive me. With as imperfect language as you have, just cry out to him. And he's a God that hears. Or maybe there's other circumstances that are going on in your life. You just need prayer. So whoever you are, no matter what's going on in your life, we want to be here to pray for you. So I want to cast an invitation for you to come to the front, to partake of communion. Maybe just get on your knees and do business with God. And if you need prayer, I'll be up in the front. We'll have some leaders up in the front. I would love to pray with you as you just do business with God who loves you, who gave himself for you at great cost and expenditure, expenditure to himself so that you can be given freedom and brought home. So let me pray. Let's respond. God, thank you for your love. And in response right now, God, we come to you. We bring our hearts. We bring our love. We bring our worship. So as we sing, if that's you, if you just need someone to pray with you, don't miss this opportunity. Sometimes God invites us to stretch out our hand or to step out of a tree or to step out of our seat, that that will be the means by which God will begin to do business with those issues that are plaguing you. Or you can just keep going trying to fight them yourself in the darkness, alone. I would suggest Several of you have already tried that, and you know where that path leads. Today might be the day for total deliverance. You never know. So come to the front. I'd love to pray with you. I want to do business with God.